0: This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Vogue.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. How are you doing, Max? I'm good, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm very, very uh, relaxed and kind of happy I saw my sister's uh, uh, child for the first time today. I have Ooh. two sisters, and one of them has two children already, and the, the other one just had a baby, so we just saw the baby today for the first time. So that That's was cool. uh, very exciting.
0: Cool. And, That's uh, an exciting uh, uh, thing to start on. And and what? who are we talking to today on the 3D Pod to aid to this excitement?
1: We would never make it in cable TV. That was a really cool No, we would never crazy. make it in cable TV. <laughs> <laughs> We would not be the anchor of, like, you know, uh, the local Phoenix TV station. <laughs> oh, like the, the worst, Speaking the of worst. hot children. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh, man. No. All right. All so, right, today, all right. <laughs> so today uh, we're going to be talking to Tyler LeBron. And Tyler LeBron, well, he started off as a, a Boeing commercial airplanes. I work on the, as a mechanical engineer there. Then he moved over to Aerojet Rocketdyne, uh, where he ended up being working on uh, combustion devices and things like that. He became a propulsion engineer at Blue Origin, and then he was a materials and process engineering engineer as well, also Blue Origin, uh, for moving over doing some consulting and other stuff, then working at Sandia National Laboratories, where they invented the watermelon. And uh, yeah, Sandia's is, of course, America's, one of America's national labs, and they do a lot of really, really super cutting edge stuff. And he also works, uh, helps out at uh, SME, the Additive Manufacturing Tech Community Leadership Committee advisor, and so he knows a ton about additive manufacturing, especially in the aerospace kind of new space realm, and also about standards and stuff. So that's what we're really, really looking to speak to Tyler about. Welcome to the show, Tyler.
2: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: Uh, so t- first off, like like. You got started in mechanical engineering, so you, you presumably came in, uh, you know, in contact in in, in college or somewhere 3D printing for the first time. Was it somewhere else?
2: Actually, so 3D printing really hadn't taken off to the degree it is now. Back when I was an undergrad in like the 2006 time frame, so there was I think nestled away in some corner of UC Berkeley, there was probably a plastic printer, but it wasn't in any way part of the curriculum. We were very much doing the old school drawings and CAD geometry and just spending time down in the machine shop and learning how to actually cut chips on our own little parts. But yeah, additive manufacturing really hadn't kind of come to the forefront in terms of the material science world or the mechanical engineering department at that time. So it really was, my first exposure was back at Rocketdyne. Um, There's quite a lot of work that has precipitated since then from when we got introduced to AM on the J2X engine program. Um, but at, it, we were also very much supporting kind of like NASA Marshall space flight center and their first toe dipping exercise into AM on that particular program as well.
1: Uh, th- those are, of course really gr- quite groundbreaking uh, kind of engine programs that did a lot of additive and did a lot of uh, kind of uh, things for, uh, you know, for, for a lot of like a lot of this engine thing. So first I think generally, I think we've talked about it a whole bunch of time, but like, why are these, because we're now we're seeing that engine and engine propulsion for space a new space, government, and, and and kind of old space, I guess. Uh, you know, 3D printing is becoming like the standard technology. So, so what's the logic behind, or why are these guys, you know, using us as the default technology? What's the logic behind this propulsion and 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 additive manufacturing, that that beautiful marriage, let's say
2: sure yeah there's there's a couple of forcing functions there as to why am has really become so important to those specific that specific industry first and foremost most propulsion products are typically not at the quantities of scale that we see say in the automotive industry so the the economic business case behind am begins to make a lot more sense but when we talk about specific part to part applications the reason am has become so attractive has been In the combustion chamber space, there are very specific assembly sequences that occur in legacy designs that are considered extremely high risk. So when we do very complicated braze operations between, say, injector posts and a main injector face, or you're trying to put together the the combustion chamber liner with its uh, structural jacket on the outside, there's a braze operation that happens there. Those types of operations tend to uh, scrap parts if you don't do it right. And those parts are extremely expensive. There's been a lot of work that has gone into making the subcomponent pieces that then get assembled together. You do your best not to make it a roll of the dice, but AM basically allows you to make fully integrated components that don't require that subsequent assembly sequence that exposes you, expose you to that kind of risk. So AM is extremely attractive to, to mitigate for risk in that way. Um, but also, they're just because of the limitations on how those parts went together, you were limited on your design space. And so what we see a lot of now is we're able to take advantage of the, I know people, this is going to be a trigger phrase for some people, but complexity is free argument. Um, So we can add complexity to design and effectively take advantage of it through AM and build in higher performing engines um, based off of just the creativity of the designer at the time, where historically we've been stuck with traditional machine tools and then The typical type of assembly like welding or brazing or nuts and bolts and and bolted joints. And so we're able to kind of short circuit a lot of those constraints on the design space. So it really works in Rocket Propulsion's favor to leverage the technology. And that's where we've seen, I think, the most investment and a lot of the development in terms of, I mean, you see it in the large format printers now. So like Velo3D, SLM, and a few of the others that are coming out with these giant format printers, those are in many respects, cater made to producing propulsion products because they're very tall, high aspect ratio. It's like a one meter or larger in the Z direction. And that was kind of a finger point to making these tall thrust chambers. And so that's where I think there's been a lot of um, incentive to develop specifically for that and cater to that industry specifically.
1: Some, some people like, forget about, like, first off, brazing is a huge business case for 3D printing. I've seen more and more and copper, brazing, in heating, and, and complex assemblies of motors and all this other stuff, that whenever we see brazing, there's high scrap rates, there's a lot of manual labor, and there's a lot of stuff that can uh, go wrong that we don't even notice until it's far too late. So I think that's, that's one of the things where we we're saying, like, the brazing makes for a huge AM business case in very high-value uh, objects.
2: Absolutely, yeah. There's, there. Surprisingly, there's a lot of brazing that happens, especially in those copper to, say, uh, nickel-based super alloy joints. Um, and so, if they could find ways to make something that is structurally robust out of a single monolithic material, there's a huge incentive to replace the braze with something like that and just basically print it.
1: And it's generally, I think I think that point, the broader point uh, out of that is that whole design for assembly or design for fabrication, kind of uh, a component where we also, okay, yes, we talk about it, but again. People aren't you know in, in these kind of vehicle assembly, engine assembly plants, this kind of like, you know, the minute, every minute, every operation is quite valuable. So there this kind of stuff really, really makes a big difference as well, right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, the I think I have in my role right now with Sandia National Labs, whenever I try to educate folks internally as to how best to think of additive, it's usually how can we how can we reduce overall system complexity by making larger, more complicated to fabricate by conventional manufacturing tools, but relatively easy by AM. So we reduce part count, we reduce interfaces, we reduce the need for like inspection. We error proof designs because we've eliminated say the joints and the need to have a specific torque value and all manner of just opportunities to have a system break. We can do better at our engineering because we've been able to, Reduce the overall complexity and, and make single parts we print.
1: And then you, were, but but when you got started, AeroJet and stuff. So you you came into contact with it. Was it immediate? Like, oh my god, this is going to change everything, or did it take a long time relatively for you to to to, to get come to grips with it and your teams and stuff to to really use this technology?
2: That's a good question. So when I started at Rocketdyne, AM wasn't a tool we had accessible. I, I think the materials and process community in Rocketdyne knew of the tool, but we no one was considering it for application. And it wasn't until on the J2X engine program, I was responsible for just this one tiny little part. And it was effectively a, a piece of ducting that went from the gas generator that fed to the inlet of the fuel turbo pump on that, that program. And the constraints of that particular product were, we got to make this part. It's like trying to bend a fire hydrant. And so the tube bending operation was breaking the tooling at our tube bending vendor. And so what can we do And we ended up coming up with a solution that required a whole bunch of welds and that NASA didn't like because some of those welds were not fully inspectable. And so we pursued as a team on those uh, hot gas components, we pursued, well, what if we were to parallel path and printing the duct and just making it one part? And so there was a lot of concern, naturally, both at Rocketdyne and at Marshall Space Flight Center over printing anything. We literally had no idea if the thing was just going to disintegrate on the test stand. Like, would this thing hold up to the rigors of a hot fire? And so we went through the effort of working with Morris technologies when they were still Morris technologies at the time and built um, this duct replacement. And they basically kitted it up to a gas generator on a test stand at Marshall and they hot fired it, instrumented part backwards and forwards, pulled it off and did a destructive evaluation and found this thing actually did a pretty good job. And so that was kind of the the floodgates were open. And so from there going forward, we began to explore, well, what if we were to take legacy design, like the F1 engine that was used in the Apollo program? And some of those parts are like works of art. There's a whole bunch of like handwork that went into making them. What if we were to just print these things and then find ways to just reduce the, the level of risk and complexity of assembly? And can we make can we revitalize that old engine program and maybe make it that something we can recreate today? And so that's when I was spending some time in the the metallography lab, just exploring why was the print failing? Why were my parts cracking? Or a lot of the early headaches of AM is like, what is going on with the non-supported surfaces? Just these early questions that we were exploring back way in like 2007, trying to understand like, what's the best way to to deal with these issues of AM and, and applying it to the these old legacy designs, Um, it's almost as though we were like trying to invent the spares and repairs environment for rocket propulsion there on the spot, because no one had ever thought to try and recreate these, these old legacy designs from the 50s. A lot was kind of new at the time. But that's kind of where my exposure was. And as a design engineer, AM wasn't my thing. And I certainly didn't have the educational background yet to do materials work. So that was what came later in my master's and PhD program was a lot of the material science exposure but I was a designer first and so then like my eyes got real big I was like what on earth could I do differently today with am in my tool chest and that's when I got really excited because like now everything was new I could figure I could come up with better designs where I've been space constrained in the past I could just propose a solution that people would have thought were inconceivable until now and so am was just this watershed moment for me that that's where I then decided um, to commit much of my, my career to leaving Rocketdyne and going to school full-time for my PhD. And, and so that's, that's kind of where the transition really happened was at, at Rocketdyne.
0: Wait, were you able to reproduce the, the engine?
2: So we, we did try making the injector, one of the injector pieces, and, um, we were struggling to understand why was the part fracturing in the build chamber. And we were learning a lot about, uh, single point closures of some of the overhang features and why that created these, like the concept of residual stress was like, what on earth is driving this part to fail? Um, so I think at the time they ended up having to do some, a substantial amount of redesign to the legacy design to make it work. But I think they were able to replicate the component in terms of its form, fit, and function, uh, just with some some modifications and tweaks to get it to be printable. But I I left before that was like fully finished.
0: I'm just curious, like so. Can we throw a, you know, a 1960s or what? No, it's 19. But yeah, 1950s design into a modern metal printer at this point, and and print some of these things.
2: I think there's a lot that would need to get massaged in the design right. space, but I think the so what I think people don't appreciate from the old Apollo days is that the engines were successful because the amount of design, test, failure, redesign, test, failure, until you got it right. And so that entire design cycle is now incredibly shortened because of AM. And a lot of the modern model, I'm sorry, modern modeling and simulation tools coupled with AM in terms of being able to rapidly prototype have cut that design cycle down significantly. So we could probably push out the door, hypothetically, like a, a replica of some of these old legacy designs much quicker than it took them to do it the first time.
0: It'd be kind of fun to like, recreate an Apollo rocket <laughs> that actually worked. <laughs>
1: yeah, but that's what SLS and, and Artemis and all this stuff, it's like, it seems like really, really crazy, but actually it's kind of, well, we don't know anything else that worked really, and we don't have anything else that worked, right? So it's also, where do you start? Like from nothing, you know?
2: Yeah, blank sheet designs are. There's a lot of inertia against doing that. A lot of reuse and legacy helps inform what we do now, and that's why that's why the J2X was the J2X and not the J2S. I mean, we were really taking the same platform of the the J2 engine, which then became the J2S, and then modernizing it to become the J2X. And then when we have what we what we now have is the booster engine on Artemis is really RS25, which is the space shuttle main engine, and so we've basically redesigned for modern manufacturing much of those components. So the power heads on the top of that engine were these giant castings that were like hand-finished. And so now we have to make these things a little bit more reproducible and cheaper. And so that's where they've Rocketdyne has spent a, a tremendous amount of effort to try and make that engine program much more uh, realizable for kind of the cadence they're looking at for the Artemis program. So there's, AM is a significant con- contributor to that that space and helping to redesign for the future. Um, but I'm sure that, and the other half of it is, this is what's really sad about rocket propulsion is that much of the industry that existed back when the space shuttle main engine program was built, and if you go even further back into the Apollo program, that industry doesn't exist anymore. And so the legacy companies that were used to make some of these parts just don't exist. And they were like, just to provide an anecdote, there was this Bellows manufacturer that we were relied upon for the J2X program. It still existed, but it was the father and the grandfather from the original days when they were making them for the Apollo program that were still present. The the, the children after the father weren't in the family business, and there was a significant risk of losing that, that institutional knowledge of that company as to how to make these parts the right way. And so AM is going to get looked to in increasingly more frequent applications of how to make parts that just the old company doesn't exist anymore.
1: I think that's really cool. And I've heard more examples of this, huh? and of people that are just like the handmade industries, people that have skills that we don't have anymore that can like, they can't make these things or stuff like that. So that's what I think is really, yeah, the J2X is really, it seems really esoteric. If you think about it in the beginning, it's like, wait, we're trying to make the Apollo engine, but then better. Like you know what I mean? You would think all of a sudden right. it's like, look, let's just do something mega new age technology. We've gone, we come across you know seventy years or something. We've come across so much new. So I think it's it's really really interesting that that they did this program and that they they came up with the program to. To, to use this this engine for the the RL10 or the SLS uh, thing, and that, that it really is kind of like you know there's an unbroken line almost, uh, but with a giant gap right uh, between like like the the Saturn programs of Apollo right. programs and, and 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 now. Definitely. So I think I think that's really super crazy actually, but really really kind of cool. But if you're talking about like trying to introduce additive into an organization that where everyone is really super experienced in anything but additive, you know. Do you have any tips for us? Is there anything that works? Because like every time in every organization, it's institutional change, it's people that you're just like, you know, you're really gonna replace them or, or, or clash with them. So what what actually does work and then working with people who you know to, to kind of promote this technology or implement it?
2: Oh man, that's the that's the story of my life right now. Um it's hard. The 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 short answer is it's not easy to re retool and re educate a workforce you already have that is skilled at conventional manufacturing and design for conventional manufacturing. Um, and then the good news is, I mean, a lot of the young people that are coming out of school now have the exposure to additive and are able to think in ways that additive can promote the production of those parts, but taking an existing organization, one that has the institutional inertia and sometimes bloat that resists that kind of change. It's not easy. Um, What I have found has been um, it's like make the opportunities for education um, like everywhere. So you need to convince leadership that design for additive manufacturing or and or uh, all of the materials and process knowledge that comes behind additive manufacturing, all the education that you would want somebody to know, you have to make that proliferate and be readily accessible. So you have to just inundate your staff with the opportunities to learn. And then from that, I think what we found extremely successful at Blue Origin was that co-locating additive manufacturing capability with the design teams is incredibly valuable. So being able to have someone effectively go next door and see their parts being fabricated and understand why is it failing in the build or, Hey, I didn't know I could do it this way, or this is how I do things better. And they actually have a hands-on appreciation for the production of their parts that begets better designers. And that begets, I think more better opportunities that get pushed into the printers, as opposed to just taking the same widget you had yesterday and saying, can I print it? Because those is it printable from a legacy design perspective? Never. That's never the best use of the tool. It's always, can you design from the ground up something that is cater made for additive? That's where we see the most success. But people have to know, learn how to do that. And so having them get their hands dirty sometimes and help with the printing itself really helps to inform them. And that's, thankfully, I had that opportunity. So that's where I've been able to then pass on that information at the National Labs is all that in the, getting dirty with the PAPR system and the whole Tyvek suit and play with the powder, uh, play with the powder, but get in dirty with the printers and learn this is where things break. This is where things don't work. This is how I do better at my job. And then provide that as information and education for the other staff members that maybe don't have access to that. But if you're trying to learn how to design for additive from afar and you never get to see your part made, that's it's an incredibly difficult task to learn if you don't actually get your hands dirty. But that's true with every manufacturing technology. I've seen so much value come out of time on the on the fab floor with someone that's been up in up in the offices in the cube farm and never having had a chance to learn how their parts are made via any tool. They're just terrible at their job as a designer if they don't appreciate the work that goes into making it. And so having that diverse skill set is incredibly valuable.
1: Yeah definitely and before we get to the blue oranges, I do want to like stay a little bit on Aerojet because I thought it was one of the biggest like moments for me in Audit was this whole NASA all of a sudden because okay the Aerojet is learning about 3d printing and rockets that's one thing uh but then usually they would keep that super secret stuff right and then to me what was huge was the fact that nasa started really actively you know spreading a lot of e-beam information uh doing a lot of presentation doing a lot of papers and stuff about like hey this works and this is what works and this is what we don't have and then also they had this whole baby bantam project with, mm-hmm. with Rocketdyne, which really like showcased a lot of people i remember I think I still use this. I mean, I think I remember, that was the one that was like, like eighty parts went into three, right? And mm-hmm. NASA came out and said, you know, hey, we're equaling the performance of cast and forged parts. And it was all of a sudden everybody was like, What? You know you know what I mean? So everybody right. who was not on board was all of a sudden asking people like me and people like everyone else, like, like, what's going on? Are we, are we do we need to do this? What is this? Right? So it, that to me was a watershed moment and added it for space.
2: A few years ago I went to Amug and they Someone from NASA, I can't remember his name, but he presented on that, that their first product that they ended up co-developing with Rocketdyne. And it happened to be that simple piece of ducting on the J2X program. But the moment they felt like there was a, a path to having viability for material performance independent of the design freedom, they just they were scared of what would happen as a consequence of what they thought were just a millions of tiny little welds. Could we make a part? And so once they felt like they could address those fears, they immediately began to invest themselves, and so that's when I think Marshall doubled down on the technology and the printer number and diversity of printing opportunities at Marshall proliferated, and then we began to see like Rockeye make their own investments rather than farm everything out. So they didn't have any printers at the time we were doing this work, and so that's when they pulled all that work internally, and so I think that's when everybody it became like the it became a race to try and and mature the technology. So they could one, do it themselves, generate their own IP. And then two, in the case of a federal agency like NASA, they're like, well, how do we help broader industry? And so that's when you start to see a lot more public information get disseminated from whatever they're doing internally. Um, So a lot of the folks that I've worked with over the past have been very prolific in terms of their public appearances, both at academic conferences, industry conferences, and then also just the content that they make available and their willingness to, to work with companies to develop the tool and see its adoption. But the box is open and now or rather is the genie out of the bottle. but we're basically uh, seeing the, the the fruits of all of that hard work as we begin to to just see the technology mature over time. But yeah that's it started all way back way in like 2007, 2008 uh, with Marshall and Rocketdyne.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's really great. But also, like, instead of it being everybody was experimenting, but it was going badly for everyone. Yep. It was like, oh, here are people that get results. And right. wait, why aren't we getting those results? <laughs> so I, th- I think that was a huge moment. And also just the performance, because everyone, I think, understood all of a sudden, if we can do reduced part count by that much, and if we can get those same properties, then all of a sudden we can use this throughout uh, the propulsion system. So I think that was a huge moment, at least for me and a lot of other people. I know. Definitely. Of course, well, then afterwards, you were at Blue Origin, so that, that must have been super fun as well, because that, like uh, that was like a complete, well, that's a very, very different project, right, from the Brocadine yeah. thing. That was a, a completely, you know, start with the concrete floor, uh, what
0: color do we want the concrete floor to be, you know, that was very <laughs> different, right? Yeah, well. Were you, were you basically there for the opening of Blue Origin?
2: So, no, so I actually, um, between Rocketdyne and Blue Origin, I was out of industry for three and a half years doing the PhD in Japan. And then went to work as an employee like 331 at Blue Origin. So we have the single building there okay. in Kent, Washington.
0: So pretty early because rocket companies need a lot of people, right? They do. <laughs> I'm just curious because, like, what was the culture like?
2: You know that. So that that's a great question. the The company changed a lot while I was there, and has changed even more since then. Um, but the culture did feel they didn't like well the re- the head recruiter i spoke to didn't like being referred to as a startup they want he wanted to be taken more seriously than being called a startup but they were really kind of like a startup in the way that engineers were the title they had were responsible engineers meaning they had their component and they were tasked with everything about it so you didn't have schedulers and planners and mnp personnel you had mnp staff but you didn't have like a whole team centered around a particular grouping of like components and so every RE or responsible engineer was meant to shepherd their parts from cradle to grave through test. They had to know everything about it. They had to participate at every step of the way and they had buyer authority themselves. So we each had our own P cards. We could go Ooh. buy whatever we needed up to like $5,000 at the time, which was unheard That's, of. Yeah, And so we're, we're just working on everything we could think of to support the BE3 engine. And then the BE4 engine was getting started. Um, and so I came in, and my experience at Rocketdyne, specifically on systems design, was leveraged to help kind of retool the entire engineering definition on the BE-3 engine program, such that it went from a kind of cobbled together program that we know works, but we don't yet have ready to produce in volumes that would support the proposed cadence of space tourism and and the suborbital missions that they wanted to do. And so we had to make it like manufacturable, like an actual product. And so that required a complete overhaul of the engineering definition. And so I helped with that. And then it's while I was there, that's when the transition began to happen to support additive because additive, I think they, they started with one printer and they were like, well, this could mean quite a bit of a game changer for us. And then the investment kept coming. We continued to make the compelling case to uncle Jeff, as we called him um, to get, more resources to buy more printers and then eventually it became its own building across the street and so then it became its own organization outside of MNP, and so it just continued to grow and grow and then i ended up leaving and i've heard since then that they have like i don't know what multiplier but they have far more printers than i can imagine fitting in any of those buildings but they have doubled down much in the way i think spacex has done the same with some of their programs on reliance with additive to produce their components and their entire engine programs Thank you, just just only for the Uncle Jeff thing that, that I think was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, really, I do. I do. That love makes Uncle
1: all Jeff. of this completely <laughs> worth it. Uh, <laughs> but, but um, and it's, 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 it's one of the most secretive organizations on Earth as well. It's like it's, it's oh my goodness. It's, uh, so it's very very difficult. So nice to get a little bit of a candid thing. But that that initial organization that sounds like an amazing place to learn how to do like rockets and space and all that kind of stuff. That just sounds like an amazing place shop to learn everything. You know.
2: Definitely. Yeah, they they had I know this sounds kind of cheesy, but they had like giant quotes that were printed onto the walls. And one of them was from I can't remember what who was the race car driver, but it was something like if things are under control, it means you're not going fast enough. So that was very much the ethos was like schedule was king. We need to figure out how to do this and we're willing to break things to and fail, but learn from it. And so that was a complete Completely different environment from what I was exposed to at Rocketdyne, which was we only have so many test opportunities, and we can't have a failure on our on our hands. So we have to uh, simulate, model, and basically analyze to death before we're ever going to put uh, propellants down in an engine on a test stand and, and consider a potential failure. So it was a very different environment, um, and I think just the the open spigot for resources to make things happen was very welcomed and. But to my point earlier, like the culture did change as the company began to grow, that posture of everybody having all of that authority and responsibility wasn't as sustainable for a company of the size it was becoming. And so that's when it turned into kind of more traditional aerospace posture. And so they did hire in um, a proper CEO from, I think, Honeywell Aerospace and some of the, the upper levels of management ended up becoming enshrined from other Corners of that, that industry, and so things began to change. And i I really feel like the tide turned the day that we had to actually fill out a time card. And I was like, "Oh man, time to go."
0: <sighs> yeah. No, <that's>, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, uh, having been was- in both environments, I'm curious is 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 the answer actually somewhere in the middle, um, or do you think that one or the other, Blue Origin or or Rocketdyne, had a, a better philosophy? Um, for for this particular industry, I realize it's a very niche and kind of weird industry. And uh, you know, I'm
2: well, <laughs> I think that the the successes of those that do it a specific way speak for themselves. So as much as as much as SpaceX was like made fun of by the folks at Rocketdyne when they were having failures, I mean, they're flying far more missions than Rocketdyne ever has. And so, granted, they don't have the Polished reputation that Rocketdyne likes to put forward and say we've never had an engine failure, ever. Versus, well, we're SpaceX is actually flying stuff into orbit on a cadence that is unheard of. I think that speaks to the difference in terms of the decision making and risk tolerance that those different organizations had, and I would argue it's probably a combination of both in the sense that. If you plan to do iterate on design and have that kind of blank sheet opportunity to create business where it doesn't yet exist, you have to be willing to move fast and break things. But at the same time, if you're going to have a sustained posture, then you're going to have to have some legacy kind of corporate mentality to just continue to drive efficiencies into the bottom line. And that's where I think there's a little bit more conservatism that shows up. So having a little bit of both or knowing when to use those two different tools for the different application, I think is, is important to recognize. And I don't think it's not a one size fits all. You can't, yeah, work, yeah. you can't run like blue origin forever the way it was in the early days.
0: <laughs> I mean, you can with a lot of money.
2: <laughs> yes, that's true.
1: If we look at this kind of like the innovative culture and the more state and like perfectionist culture, let's say, you know, is that being engineered or does it happen because of personalities or do these co- organizations could like really take culture into account? Is it like a design culture? Or does it just happen? Right. Because it, it, to me, this whole culture, like, you know, I've been to certain co- companies like worryingly for some, like large chemical companies, right. where one, everything is spotless. Everything is clean. Everyone is really kind of like, um, really precise. And other ones where there's a really lax safety culture. And I'm like, guys, like, we can't change this, you know? Right. Uh, so, so, so are these people engineering culture is, or is HR really like the, the, the department that gives make sure everybody gets their, their, their pay slips on
2: time? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know if I have an answer that explains it all, but I can tell you that some of the types of decision-making on where engineering is done to excess. So like in the perfectionist type of culture before we show up to a test stand, for example, in Rocketdyne. That kind of posture I think was only enabled because programs of the past were cost plus programs, whereas now programs of today are fixed price. And there are a lot more players in the game. There is competition. And so I would argue that the competitive nature that the rocket propulsion industry has become, as well as the fact that you don't get to just continue to charge the the, cor- the credit card to the federal government and then get your profit on top of that um, since those are now gone we're not racing against the russians anymore for basically missile capability and, and as a consequence rocket propulsion technology um, we're we basically have a difference in terms of where the risk appetite is and so I think the startup culture that has precipitated out of the tech industry that has permeated into the rocket propulsion industry certainly contributed to that. And I think it's just, but certainly there's like, HR does have kind of the, the reins a little bit that can pull on that a little to some degree, but in terms of how companies are behaving now, especially when they're small and new, I think is informed largely by like, we need to find ways to be successful quickly and show a return so that we can continue to grow but at some point, the natural trajectory and the arc of a company as it matures is towards that, I think, perfectionist type role where they're going to institutionalize some of the the types of um, engineering methodologies that look like more like Rocketdyne. But that's, I think, the result of age rather than uh, like, an, a, like a specific decision that somebody made one day.
1: Yeah, so And now you're at Sandia. And Sandia is like, that's a completely different animal. Like, you know, oh, well, yeah. What's that like? What's that like working there?
2: So... Sandia National Laboratories is the largest national lab in the United States uh, where the, I joke, and I think this is actually not correct, but I joke that we're the only national lab that's plural. It's laboratories. That's because we have multiple sites kind of sprinkled around the country. Um, but we have like 15,000 or so people between all the different sites. And we are what's called a multi-mission laboratory within the Department of Energy. And so we touch so many different areas of fundamental research and science, as well as programs for our DOE customer and our DOD customers, um, that it's just, it's amazing that like the opportunities that are inside the fence that we can work on um, and the kinds of resources we have at our disposal. Um, But we were very slow and I I I knew that going in that we were gonna be like every other, the joke is every other part of the federal government. Some of that's intentional. Some of that's not. Um, we do have very specific rules we have to follow when it comes to procurement strategies and and fair competition and lots of, lots of red tape in many ways. But um, the kinds of stuff we get to work on, especially in the additive space, I probably wouldn't have the resources or the freedom to do if I was at a private entity. And so sometimes for the research staff that are working in the material science departments are able to really Go down the rabbit holes that are there and it's encouraged. I mean, we are able to publish uh, a lot of the fundamental research that we do. And so a lot of great publications come out of the work that's funded by the federal government and that's encouraged. What's different though is that showing up from outside industry, I'm coming in with a lot of experience of like how do we do things efficiently to achieve a specific goal as opposed to the kind of the wandering academic spirit. And so when I work on behalf of a major program, as my title right now is the additive manufacturing lead. I have to chase after the realities of application, the realities of realization on, on product. And so sometimes that runs somewhat anathema to like the researcher that wants to kind of spend his time in the laboratory and figure out, well, where is this going to take me today? I'm like, no, 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 no. I have product I got to deliver on. You need to answer these very specific questions. And so that type of, uh, mentality is very different and sometimes very scary to the researcher. Like I have deadlines to meet. I have fixed budget. You need to do X, Y, and Z. And so let's work on answering those questions very targetedly. And we're going to try and get our work done so we can deliver our final system to the customer. And so that's where additive has kind of come full circle is trying to make sure that we take both the cutting edge research that we do, but then how do we apply it? How do we go from benchtop to actual like high levels of TRL? And so that's that's kind of where I've spent most of my time in the labs.
1: And how does it work? Because like, because Sandia is okay. First off, it's large. It's also kind of very different because I don't think anyone in the world really has something like this. Because it's like a, it's managed by a commercial company that you like. You kind of explain how it's different already. But it's also doing very, very different things, right? That's right. Uh, you do like those rocket sleds that we've all seen in the. the... You have rocket sleds. You've got uh, high explosive testing. You've got uh, fusion research and all sorts of crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, if, if superheroes were to be born on this earth, it's probably summer else and the end. Um. So so it's all these very, very different things. All, well, I would assume, really super mega smart people. How do you try to do that kind of a shared service, like additive guy in that kind of an environment? Because that would be very different, I think.
2: So that's a good question. The additive space has been like... It typically has come from like where a lot of the d- decision making on what we focus on in the additive space to date has been either a combination of direction from programs like I need to solve these kinds of specific questions, to sometimes the preference or the skill set and experience of the individual researcher that's there at the lab. And so sometimes we find through just the process of scientific discovery that there is something that is of useful interest to us to continue investing in, um, and that's where some of the fundamental research that um, you kind of mentioned with like the fusion work, um, some of those those rabbit holes that we find ourselves going down is largely because of the creativity of the the staff on hand. So kudos to them on that. Um, in my role, though, it's it's like you're right. There, a lot of the types of work we do is unique to the laboratory, and so that drives um, like a lot of the work is homegrown and home developed. Like we don't have tools we can reach for in commercial industry to solve some of these questions. And so we have to invent them ourselves. And so that's where, like you mentioned, the rocket sled, like there's no service provider out there for that kind of testing. And we care about understanding high strain rates at, on large complex systems as they make like impact on, on fixed structures. Um, that kind of work is unique to us. And so we have to spend a lot of energy and uh, hire the right kind of people to do that, do that specialized work. Um, but we're not alone. It's sand, like you mentioned, so Sandia is just one of many national laboratories. Uh, we partner very closely with a number of other national labs throughout the U.S. So we're very closely related with Lawrence Livermore National Labs, uh, Los Alamos National Labs, Oak Ridge National Labs. Like we, I'm in constant contact with folks at these different locations. And so they have different areas of expertise and different resources available to them and where they focus their energy. And so we're able to draw upon that collective knowledge to better enable our application space here at Sandia. Um but just like you mentioned at the top of the show, the invention of the watermelon. And not many people i am sure picked up that joke.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so and you also do a lot of work for SME. So, so first of all, what's SME? I think I think it's I think it's very familiar for a bunch of people in the States, but maybe people overseas, or maybe some other people are not really familiar with SME and what they do.
2: Sure. So I was invited, or rather, I was nominated and interviewed for an open seat on the additive manufacturing technical. Community Leadership Committee. It's this long, obnoxious acronym. But basically, the Society of Manufacturing Engineers, their mission is to promote the um, manufacturing technology space as well as the education and workforce development. They are the hosts of RAPID. And so if you've ever been to RAPID, that's who puts that event on. There's a bunch of other um, manufacturing expos like West Tech, for example. But um, within SME, they're... Are a number of expert communities and committees that support them. Um, there's, I think, like three different committees that support different aspects of additive, but we're supposed to be basically kind of the process and application agnostic committee and being the experts pulled from various corners of industry. And so I sit on that in that role, and we largely support the organization through um, advice on how best to communicate additive in general, plus we help to do with all the awards that come out of the Rapid Conference. Uh, We are very much involved in some of the uh, publications that they put out. So there's a thing called Voices Amplified and the A and the M are capitalized as tongue in cheek as that might be. Um, They do give kind of us a platform to speak on matters of AM and where the industry is going. Um, But that's, that's kind of more of a platform role as opposed to, like nuts, boots on the ground, making change in industry. It's meant to be kind of more of a promotional and and visibility activity for the broader industry through the Society of Manufacturing Engineers.
1: So you're really involved with standards, right? So so I think everybody on a base level gets like, yeah, <laughs> there need to be standards in the same way that they, we know that there needs to be an FAA or something like that, you know? Sure. <laughs> but I don't exactly know what they do, but, 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 but we need them. So make the case for how a standard can help like, like an individual engineer, like, like, cause I think the people, like, I think certain organizations are all about standard, but like, like a, an individual engineer in a startup may not really like that. Maybe they don't really feel that that's really important for them. So how could they help that individual engineer? If she wants to, to, you know, get ahead, move fast and break things, you know, how, how are standards still really important for her outside?
2: Standards. The, the interesting thing about standards in the additive manufacturing industry is that they're not, we're not done. We've only just begun. And so we have a patchwork of documents that are in the wild now by different organizations. And so it depends on who you're talking about in terms of who they're meant to serve and if there's a specific industry they cater to. But largely speaking, the standards are meant to help, one, the economics associated with additive. So having people coalesce upon a specific way of doing business. Um, so when we're talking about procurement of, say, feedstock, when everybody is working to the same type of language and operates onto the same standard products, then we're able to drive efficiencies in terms of how those things are then fabricated and then sold, and as a consequence, prices effectively should come down. Um, so that lowers the bar to access when we have standards in place. Um, but we also talk about like tools of communication. So standards do a great job of helping people communicate engineering definition and also making it so there's as little ambiguity on what we would expect from, say, a producer to a customer. And so that's probably where we see most of the value right now is that people are kind of floundering as to how best do I ensure success of my additive project? And so some of the standards that are out there do provide very useful tools to Communicate engineering definition, communicate process control, communicate uh, inspection expectations. There's also this like this whole pipeline of, of best practices that come out from the standards development process that allow people to understand, okay, these types of tools are not useful, but these over here are way more effective to screen against known defects and their populations within my parts. Or here's how I can uh, better tool my facility to accept and integrate additive as part of it. And so Standards help to kind of pave that way. I don't think we're going to see in the near term standards be so prescriptive that someone can just pick it up and then place an order and out comes their part perfect. And then they just kind of do their engineering blindly. There's still work that comes with standards. You can't just, it's not a push button turnkey solution quite yet. Um, That may one day change, but we're so far from it today that everybody has their own special sauce that they want to protect, but still use quote standards. And so the standards just help to create frameworks around how to then communicate those unique custom applications or idiosyncratic differences from one customer to another. And But at least then we don't lose sight on what the ultimate expectation of deliverables are. Someone like in a startup would find standards to be useful to accelerate the adoption of the tool and also to not have the inefficiencies of miscommunication occur or getting parts that the producer would say this conforms to your requirements. And then the, the cut, the customer's like, no, it doesn't. That's not what I meant. I didn't do a good job of explaining what I wanted or where I thought control was necessary. And so standards really help to address those specific problems. And so as the whole landscape improves, I think we're going to see better and better success there.
0: Is there a specific standard that you think the industry needs to do first and foremost before tackling the other ones or like one hill that really needs to be, you know, taken on so to speak
2: you mean writing a whole new standard or which one that's out there now should like people reach either forward?
0: either which one's out there right now that needs to be redone, for the love of god from your opinion or we need a standard for x if we expect the industry to move forward in a in a meaningful way
2: oh that's well, now you're putting me on the spot um Ooh, sorry yeah. no <laughs> I, that one requires some thought um you know what
1: I've got an answer. I've got a, I've got a stupid answer. Give you time to kind of think, right? Um, sure. So for me, there's, there's there are currently a couple of mechanical testing, testing kind of standards in development and, and people are working on for different things. But they need to know, what, what I, I think we need to know a lot more about is software in, in conjunction with these tests, right? So if we're testing, like, for example, a tensile bar or something like that on a FDM printer or something, it's like where we place it on the printer, how we slice it. Uh, what software and what printer firmware slice it and kind of equalize that and measure all that. And also in setting up and, and validating the printer in, in advance of the test, I think is the biggest thing we need to be doing. Because I see a lot of like uh, research that is essentially rubbish because, like, for example, in FDM and Extrusion, where they didn't actually independently check if the, the, the printer, the, the actual temp, the hot end temperature of the printer. And I also see a lot of stuff where people are printing and I can't find in the research what the actual slicing software is or what version of the slicing software was used. And then I'm like, well, but then I still don't know what you've actually done, you know? And then in, of course in, in metal, it gets much more complicated. Uh, right. and, and there's often, if you're looking at, there's like a hundred articles like Inconel and we're going to look at Inconel 718. And I'm like, yeah, but, but how do I know that, that what hatching or, or how do I know exactly all the details of the powder you use and stuff like that? And there's so much like like eliminating all those variables. That's the one thing I would want to change personally.
2: Okay. I do have an answer. And Joris, you probably helped to prime a part of it. Um, I would argue what needs to be fixed is the electronic definition for additive manufacturing. I know they're working on different file formats and whatnot, but things like S- the STL file format is just oh, yeah.
0: STL is horrible, utter garbage. <laughs>
2: and so, trying to find a way to address the file size and complexity that that we're now seeing in some of the um, like computationally enabled designs, um, topology optimization being a really good one, that yep. is just unachievable on most desktop computers. And so it's like, there's no way I can take that and put it in a printer and print it unless I find a way to cut that file size down or improve the quality of the file so I don't have missing triangles or just random garbage that makes things incredibly difficult to be successful in the actual production st- step. So that's that's a near-term thing. Joris, you also mentioned things like um, qualification of the machines. And so that I think is a huge gap right now in that people still like to say that we have machine-to-machine variability, And so I think that's generally true, but we need to find ways of doing our insulation and operational qualifications better so that we have interoperability that is more readily accessible between platforms of the same make and model and potentially down, down the road, different make and model. So I'd love to be able to say with confidence, I could build a part on one printer and then move it to another and still get the same part. Um, That's, still out of reach, I think, without a tremendous amount of hand-wringing by the operator themselves. Um, now, the one thing I would add that's different, that um, I think is a little bit more on the tech development side that standards, I think, will one day enable is, and this is, so bear with me for a second. I think the concept of in-situ process monitoring is hot right now. And most people look at that yeah. as, as the tool of trying to eliminate inspection, like, how do we reach for the gold standard of I've detected a defect and I know it's there and I can either scrap the build or it's small enough that I can continue and it's not a big deal. What we don't appreciate, I think, in in-situ process monitoring very well yet is that our additive applications, the running the printer, is the product of monitoring input variables and expecting that those variables, when controlled, result in equivalent output. And all the engineering we have labored over for the past 10 years has been to let's fix our process, build a database that characterizes the output of that process, then show up and then make a part, and then try and assert that all that data we've collected of the output of the process somehow maps to that part, or we have some proxy witness coupon that shows the process is repeatable and in family, and then we can try our best to hand wave our margin calculations because we think that the tensile bar we've pulled off of the build plate represents similar cross-sections on the part. But we know we don't have tensile bars that represent every through thickness of the design. So we're not actually measuring what we have on the part. We're doing our best to approximate what that is. So we have a bunch of like this gray space understanding of what the part actually will do for performance, what our microstructure is, um, What tolerance do we have for defects? All of the information is just kind of like, well, let's hope and pray that we've built in enough margin and just we're going to be able to, by the skin of our teeth, make our parts work if we're so margin tight. The transition I see coming in the next decade is largely going to be where in-situ process monitoring stops becoming a defect detection tool and starts to become a processing verification tool, meaning we're no longer measuring variables like laser power and uh, cover gas and the feedstock going in. And instead we're measuring the actual metrics of the process itself. We're saying laser to powder creates a signal measured by the suite of sensors that we know to be nominal in a desired state. And we're going to now verify that every part we make is within the limits of that nominal signal so that we know the parts were made the same way. And that we know that those parts will meet requirements because we've verified that those parts made that way meet the requirements. And so we have direct validation and verification from the build that the parts are actually good. And so that's where all that technology will have to get improved, but then the regulatory bodies are going to have to feel comfortable that we're no longer maybe reliant upon fixed process, but that we have basically feed forward control. We use the data coming off the sensors to inform how the process should be modified live to keep the metrics we're measuring within the bounds we d- desire. We kind of do that in DED right now, but it took a lot of work to convince like the FAA that you could make some sort of part slightly different every time, so long as you're measuring the melt pool size and temperature and you're actually getting consistent material lay down. It's going to take a lot of effort to convince them that laser powder bed and other tools like it are going to be able to transition in much the same way. But that's where I think we're ultimately going, and that's going to enable, I think, broader adoption because then we don't have to have the giant Boeings of the world spend millions and millions of dollars to do their process characterization and really like pull hundreds and hundreds of tensile bars to build that statistical database of this is what our output might be for a given process to make a given part.
1: I think that's, that's really wonderfully said that time. I think it would be absolutely wonderful if we could make it happen. <laughs> uh, and it's going to be a long slog. Right? I don't oh think, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think you're going to, you're going to be done anytime soon.
2: No, no. <laughs> uh,
0: but it's bless just, you, I think your I journey, sir. <laughs> <laughs> bless you on your journey. Well, I still have like
2: thirty years in my career, so hopefully I'll save. Okay,
0: it. cool. Yeah, because you're gonna need it in order to like make everyone get on a standard. Oh, but you're right. Like that. Those are yeah. That is, those are the areas that really need to be worked on.
2: So yeah, there's there's a standard I'm working on now for the aerospace material specification committee with the Society of Automotive, Automotive Engineers. that's meant to create the taxonomy and hierarchy of in-situ process monitoring capability, much in the same way that they defined self-driving cars. There's an increasing level of autonomy that's enabled and they've categorized those in levels of autonomy, much in the same way that we could do for say, in-situ process monitoring. Can we automate some of that process and then provide a vehicle to create other standards that leverage that capability? And so that's currently what I'm working on and will probably present later this fall to the FA and EASA at a workshop in Germany. So super looking forward to how the industry is going to transition and, and kind of get off their, their hump when it comes to how they do uh, business as usual.
1: Okay. Super cool, man. Super cool. All right, man. Uh, so thank you so much for this. This is wonderful. And uh, uh, Godspeed. Thank you. <laughs> I think I think is what we could say. And, and Max, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Always fascinating, Jarvis. Thank you.
1: And thank you for listening. This is another episode of The 3D Pod, and have a great day.
0: You've been listening to The 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.